5, verse 25, through 6, 1 through 10. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if any one of you is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and, th- and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have a, to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The word of the Lord. I'm just going just gonna to go with the podium, Mike. Sorry. Well, good morning. Um, I guess it's an axiom of public speaking. You should uh, never start with an apology, but this is the church. And we're talking about bearing one another's burdens. And so, as you can tell, I'm a bit uh, discombobulated this morning. So if, uh, if you'll bear with me there. But uh, my name is Mike Traben. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. And I want to add my welcome to that. I'm Mike Stroh. If, if you're named Mike or Michelle, we might have a ministry position opening here for you. But um, if you're a guest, we're so grateful that you're here with us. I want to thank our special guest, Dr. Sandra Glan and her husband, Gary. Uh, Dr. Glan is going to come up as, uh, toward the end of the sermon here and, and share a story with us. And we're so grateful for uh, the years that you've mentored our church and been a friend and that you're here with us this morning. So thank you very much. Well, we are continuing this morning in our series entitled Be the Church, where we are considering what it is that scripture tells us about our life together. We've talked about what does it mean to be the church? Why do we gather? What does it look like to be generous? And this morning, we're going to look a little deeper into what the scriptures say about authentic Christian fellowship. In his book, The Living Church, John Stott argues that that fellowship is an overworked and undervalued term. In its most common use of the term, it, it, it means little more than a friendly association. In this sense, fellowship is characterized by a a superficiality that lacks intimacy and depth. Now, we all know that human relationships are exceedingly complex. We all come from different experiences, different backgrounds, different expectations that we bring to relationships. And with every relationship, there's risk. Most of us have probably been hurt by someone we considered a friend at one time in our life or the other, or someone that we had a romantic attachment to, to be in relationship to others takes work, is my point. Stott points out what he calls the the human paradox, that humans are capable of both the loftiest nobility and the basest cruelty to one another. We prefer justice to injustice. We prefer freedom to oppression. We prefer love to hatred and peace to violence. And yet we're also a human race curved inward on ourselves and capable of terrible, terrible things to one another and to communities of people. They're extreme contrasts, But I think it illustrates the dynamic that makes relationships with one another hard work. And in some senses, it explains the inability of many people today to sustain deep and enduring personal relationships. It's what makes fellowship at times hard 
and difficult. This past week, my, my wife and I watched a movie called Up in the Air. We're still debating it in my house. I thought it was a great movie. My wife, not so much. Somehow, I feel like I'm in trouble for liking it. But nonetheless, it's, it's the story of a character. His name's Ryan Bingham. He's played by George Clooney. The movie came out in 2009. I don't know if, how many of you have seen it. But, but essentially, in this story, this character, Ryan Bingham, is, is confronted by the hollowness and the immaturity of, of, of what he clings to as his life's guiding philosophy. He works as what he calls a career transition counselor for a consulting firm whose specialty it is is to go around the nation and help corporations downsize. Basically, Ryan Bingham goes around and fires people on behalf of their employer. He lives free of both his possessions and of people. He has no concern for his clients who he's transitioning into unemployment. But Ryan Bingham is also an evangelist. He's an evangelist for his philosophy and his way of life. He's got a lifestyle that's unencumbered by possessions and people, and, and he has a side hustle, if you will, as a, as a motivational speaker, and he goes to various venues, and he delivers a message that he's entitled, What's in Your Backpack?, where he offers a thought exercise where he asks his listeners to imagine all the things that encumber them in their life, their possessions, their things. And he asks them to put it in a backpack and to light it on fire and to feel the freedom that's there. And then in the next stage of this exercise, he asks them to begin to place in this backpack their relationships. And here's what he says to them in his speech. He says, feel the weight of that bag. Make no mistake, your relationships are the heaviest components in your life. Do you feel the straps cutting into your shoulders? All those negotiations and arguments and secrets and compromises, you don't need to carry all that weight. Why don't you set that bag down? Some animals, he says, were meant to carry each other, to live symbiotically for a lifetime, but he says, we are not those animals. The slower we move, the faster we die, is his philosophy. Well, the gospel narrative and, and even some of the parables of Jesus would agree with Ryan Bingham to the extent that we shouldn't be overly concerned with our material possessions, but the triune God and Ryan Bingham are far, far apart when it comes to the certainty and the necessity of human relationships in the whole of God's economy. You see, relational intimacy is part and parcel of God's design in, in both our ordinary lives and in our Christian, our spiritual lives. In the same way that it's God's design that human beings would grow from immaturity to maturity, from adolescence into adulthood through family relationships. In the context of family groups, it's the same design that God has for our spiritual lives. God's design for our growth into mature disciples calls us into fellowship with one another. Authentic, self-giving fellowship. It calls us into contact with God and with ourselves and others, and it's, it's how we are to live fully into God's will. The Greek word that we translate as fellowship in our Bibles means a shared life. Not only in our spiritual lives, but in our social and economic lives as well. Last week, Pastor Mike Stroh talked about being generous, generous with our time and our talent and our treasure as, as one of the things that marks us as the people of God, if you will. You see, true belonging and true participation in the body requires more than simply a mere association. It requires a persistence of, of commitment, of effort, of presence, and a full participation in the life of the spirit. 
So the question that we're looking at this morning is, is if a shared life is, is God's design for how we're to grow into spiritual maturity and to fully live in to the will of God, what is it that characterizes authentic Christian fellowship? Well, throughout the New Testament, we see more than, than 50 passages that speak to the mutual responsibility that we have to one another as Christians. We refer to them as the one another's of the New Testament, 59 passages by most people's count. Passages that say that we are to honor one another, to show hospitality to one another, to have fellowship with one another, to be at peace with one another, to forgive one another, to pray for one another, to serve one another, and to encourage one another to name but a few. It's these exhortations that that form this profile of, of what it means to do the will of God. And it, it describes our Christian fellowship as, as being bound together into this common life, into this shared life under the headship of Jesus Christ. And it's this reciprocal relationship that we have with one another. Friends, everything that you and I do as members of this body comes to bear on one another. We know this. When, we, when someone experiences something of great joy in their life, we celebrate with them. When somebody's having relational conflict, we feel that. When people leave our church, we suffer because of it. When people join our church, we rejoice in the encouragement. What we do amongst one another has bearing on each of us. In our passage this morning, Paul exhorts the Galatians in, in the second verse of chapter 6 to, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's a, it's a statement that describes the, the total task of love in relation to God and others. For uh, the Ryan Binghams of the world Burdens are not something to be borne. They're something to be pushed away, to be cast off, to be freed of. But God calls us to just the opposite of that, to bear one another's burdens. And he says, and in so doing, that we fulfill the law of Christ. It's significant to our responsibility to to bear one another's burdens is, as one commentator calls it, the sum and substance of the Christian life. It's the, the product and the proof of our love for God and neighbor. Bearing one another's burdens, it's, it's what reveals Christ in us. That, friends, is the sermon this morning. Bearing one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ it's how we live into the will of God. And in God's design, we were meant to do this, not by ourselves, but together. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Well, Father, you tell us that to come to you, those of us who are weary and heavy laden, and, and that you will bear our burdens, that, that you are, your yoke is easy and the burden is light when we walk with you, God. And so, Lord, help us to see these truths this morning as we, as we look at what it means to be an authentic community. Would you guide my words? Would you settle my mind and heart? Would you open our hearts to what it is that you have to say to us this morning? And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the context of our passage from Galatians this morning, this, this passage that I've chosen as really the summation of all of the one another's of scripture for the reasons that I've just laid out to you. The, the context of our passage is this Christian community that's in conflict. The authentic fellowship in the churches of Galatia had been disrupted by a number of Jews who were distorting the true gospel by insisting that, that faith in Jesus was not enough and that keeping the Mosaic law had to be added to it 
specifically the right of circumcision for males. You see, as this church is early in its infancy and growing, people are trying to find their way. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ, particularly those who, who grew up in both the faith of Judaism and the culture of being Jews? You see, to Jews, the law of the God of Moses, or excuse me, the law of God is revealed to Moses, which we have recorded in the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. This law is, to the Jew, the proven guide to walking in God's will. And so, therefore, these Jews, these Judaizers, as scholars refer to them, are asserting that that non-Jewish Christians cannot mature without adhering to the law of Moses. Well, this grieves Paul terribly. Paul had, had preached the gospel to the Galatians at a time when he was physically suffering greatly. He preached in the gospel, he says in Galatians 2, that was revealed to him not from humans, but by a direct revelation of Jesus Christ himself. And so that these very people that, that Paul himself had converted would be falling away and following a false gospel grieved him. And without summarizing all of Paul's argument against this false teaching, ultimately in chapter 5, he begins to apply this, this doctrine of freedom in Christ to reinforce that it's life in the Spirit as the means by which Christians live into God's divine will and and fulfill the law, not the law of Moses, but what Paul refers to in this second verse of chapter 6 as the law of Christ. Looking in chapter 5 at at verse 13 and 14, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I like how Eugene Peterson in his message summarizes verses 13 and 14. He says, don't use your freedom to do as an excuse to do whatever it is that you want, but use your freedom to serve one another in love. He says, that's how our freedom grows. Loving others as we love ourselves fulfills all of the law. I love how Peterson points out that that by using our freedom to love others, in fact, that's what causes our freedom in Christ to mature, to grow. That is to say that, that we should, if we are eager to mature and to grow, then we should be eager to serve one another in love, because it fulfills all of the law. Now, this command to to love one another might seem fairly straightforward at its face value, but but it becomes much more difficult at the point of application, right? Because some people are easier to love than others, right? Relationships take work. And so we can easily default to communing with those we perceive that we have more in common with. It's easier to love those who think and speak or act like us, but I don't think that gets to the depth of relationship that we're called to in Christ. Undoubtedly, you have experienced frustration with people in your life, people even in this body who have different points of view than you. We're an interesting church. My wife likes to say that we're too liberal for the conservatives and too conservative for the liberals. We're trying to, in some sense, not occupy a middle ground so as to satisfy everybody, but to adhere to the most important things. It's why the Nicene Creed is our doctrinal statement. We're keeping first things first and and matters of secondary importance, we're leaving up to matters of personal conviction. And we're not asking people to to check their convictions at the door. We're asking people to to enter into a, a body that's diverse and experience authentic fellowship by loving one another. 
Paul reminds the Galatians and us in his argument here, in his exhortation to the Galatians to to live their life by the Spirit, he says that, that we are at war with our flesh. That's our sinful nature. And he describes this conflict between the works of the flesh which divide and the fruit of the Spirit that allows us to manifest love. He gives this whole list. He says the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the king of God. Paul is saying that as as we sow to the flesh, we'll reap the rewards of the flesh, and, and those rewards are not an inheritance of the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of God says the works of the flesh lead us back to a lack of love for one another. And so how do we achieve victory over the flesh? He tells the Galatians and us that it's, it's not through the law of Moses. It's by walking and being led by the Spirit which fulfills the law of Christ. The Jews had the Torah of Moses. Paul's talking about the Torah of the Messiah of Jesus, the anointed one of God. He says, as we picked up in verse 25 this morning, he says that that bearing one another's burdens, it's a natural outworking of keeping in step with the Spirit. He says, "If if we live by the Spirit, living by the Spirit and serving one another in love, he says, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. But then he goes on to give a warning. He says that our our conduct toward others here in verse 26, it's determined by our opinion of ourselves. He warns, let's not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You see, what we think of ourselves influences the way that we deal with others. If on the one hand we think of ourselves as superior to other people, then we'll, we'll challenge them, we'll provoke them. We'll want to prove how right we are, how wrong they are, how superior our view is to theirs. Our approach to discipleship, our approach to living life as Jesus' witnesses. We provoke them, but yet on the other hand, if, if somehow we regard them as superior to us, then envy creeps in. And we resent them. Our humility, Paul reminds us, is a prerequisite to this self-giving love. And our humility is is one of the marks of authenticity of our fellowship. He says the same thing to the Philippian church. He says, do nothing according to selfish ambition or according to empty conceit, but in humility, considering one another better than yourselves, Each of you not looking out for your own self-interests, but also each of you for the interest of others. Friends, part of our relationship, being in relationship as part of this fellowship of, of the saints, is having a correct view of ourselves. And where do we get this correct view? We get it by walking in the Spirit, being attentive to what the Spirit is revealing to us, about our own hearts. We get it by prayerfully asking God to reveal to us where we might be missing the mark. And we get it by being in relationship with others in in such a trusted way that a brother or sister can point out to you your fault or where you may be walking in the flesh rather than being led by the Spirit. This central characteristic of our authentic fellowship is that we're serving one another in love and not being at odds with one another. As I've said, this second verse of of chapter 6 is, I think, sums up all of the, the one another's. 
that we are to bear one another's burdens. And friends, we, we all have burdens. We might be too proud to, to tell people what they are. We might think that we have to keep them to ourselves. And, and that is not the authentic fellowship that God wants for his church. We have burdens, the, the burdens of sin struggles, moral lapses, temptation and guilt, the big, the big ones. But then we have the more subtle ones, relational struggles, marital struggles, parenting struggles, emotional struggles, behavioral and, and physical health challenges. And we might even have financial and material burdens. And friends, the, the good news is we're not meant to carry them alone. And carrying them for one another Carrying them alongside one another is, is part of God's design for how we are moving in to this remarkable love that is Jesus Christ. What Paul is, is asking us to see here in this passage and, and what is striking to me as I, as I learn, as I prepare, and as I even preach this sermon is that Paul is, is asking us to see that, that loving our neighbor which Jesus says fulfills all of the law, which Paul says fulfills all of the law, that loving our neighbor and bearing one another's burdens and, and fulfilling the law, there are three equivalent expressions. Do you want to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? Well, part of how you live into that is by loving one another and carrying one another's burdens. It should be freeing to us that, that, that loving one another as Christ loves doesn't, doesn't have to be some, some heroic, spectacular deed of self-sacrifice. But it's, it's accessible in the, in the more, perhaps, mundane, unspectacular aspect of ministry of just being in relationship with people where, where you are known and you are knowing them, where we're growing in our knowledge and love for one another and our freedom and trust to invite others in to sharing our burdens. We do this well in our church. We have connection groups, we have elders and, and pastors and, and leadership partners who pray for the body, we have a prayer chain, we fellowship every Sunday in the fellowship hall where people are sharing about their lives. But I would ask that how can you make these connections more authentic and perhaps even more meaningful if you're connected and if you're not connected, how can you get connected? You see, your, your burdens can't be carried if they're not known. Well, in the last part of this passage here, Paul's, Paul reminds us of what is at stake. Not only do we have this responsibility as Christians, as members of the household of, of God, he calls it, as members of, of God's family, not only do we have this responsible a responsibility rather to care for one another but but we are accountable to God for how we are fulfilling this law of Christ he says in chapter 6 verse 7 he says do not be deceived God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Friends, God is asking us to, to sow into one another's lives through our works. We do well to take note that every judgment of believers that we see in the Bible is, is a judgment according to our works. We can intellectualize and think about our faith all we want, but if we're not living out our faith in our actions, that, that is the true barometer of our relationship with Christ. He says in, in verse 9, he says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we'll reap 
if we do not give up. He says, we can't grow weary of doing good. It's hard work. It's exhausting. It might even feel to you burdensome. But he says we can't grow weary and give up because our final standing before God will be determined by our relationship to Jesus Christ as revealed in our works. We know that, that out of our heart, our mouth speaks. Jesus says that, that out, of, out of our heart is, really reveals our true self. And Paul is reminding us here that, that out of our heart comes the works that truly reveal who we are. You see, the, the witness of our behaviors expresses our identity in Christ. They're, they're the sure indicators of the state of our heart and our orientation and status before God. And so Paul says in, in verse 10 here, he says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Paul is reminding us that we are to do good to everyone, not just fellow Christians, but everyone. In Galatian, in the third chapter of Galatians, in verse 28, he shows us this diversity of, of who we are to do good to. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for we are all one in Jesus Christ. Regardless of a person's culture, their nation, their gender, Paul tells us that we're to do good to them. And doing good in the world is part of our witness to Christ, right? It's what sets us apart from the world. And we do this well here in our church as well. We support refugees. We have partnerships with local ministries. We have partnerships with foreign missionaries. We partner with the local school district, the neighbors, our, our neighbors, the bus drivers. But we have to ask ourselves, how are we witnessing to and engaging the broader culture around us? Are we, are we in conflict with them? Are we trying to best them somehow in our superior Christian worldview? Or are we simply trying to reveal to them the heart of Christ in the way that we love and serve them, providing a contrasting example of what human flourishing can look like by the, the way we live our lives and care for people. Yes, our, our loving one another begins in our own household of faith, but it doesn't stop there. We're not just to love our friends. Jesus tells us we're to, to love our enemies as well. Well, well how, do we, how do we do this? This this whole exhortation in this passage that, that we've been talking about is really Paul giving them an application. He says that burden-bearing is, is, is our active Christian one-anotherness. We are to be responsible, he says, and that's where it starts. We have to be responsible to loving others. And what, is, what does it mean to be responsible, that, that we acknowledge that God is calling us to respond to what he's telling us. It's more than just knowing that the Bible calls us to love others or to love one another, but that the Bible is calling us to actually actively participate in that. You see, we, we learn to walk in the spirit through the embodied practice of these one another's. It's, it's why these one another's figure so prominently in the scriptures. Because we only grow in this capacity by actually doing it. We learn to dwell in love through embodied and, and experiential participation. In the same way that you learn to play an instrument or ride a bike or, or, or cook, shoot basketballs, we have to practice. And, and when we do like Eugene Peterson says, we grow. We grow in our capacity to receive and to give God's love, not, not by merely thinking and believing correctly, but, but by trusting Jesus in our bodies, with our lives, 
in the midst of our relationships and taking these concrete steps, which, so we have to be responsible and we, we have to be present. Part of being responsible is, is being present to others, being in authentic fellowship. Part of that is, is listening, taking an interest in somebody else's life, asking questions, and praying. Because, friends, re- responsibility requires action. And the action of Christ demands kindness and gentleness, Paul tells us. He talks about correcting a brother in, in verse 1, or a brother or sister, rather, in, in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says that we who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Some translations read humility. What Christ is talking about here is this meekness. And I want to offer, friends, that that kindness and gentleness and meekness are characteristics of authentic fellowship, both within the household of faith and with those outside. It's easy to get caught up in this idea of, of, of warring against the culture and that we've got to go put people in their place and and show them who's right and who's wrong. And make no mistake, I believe that what the Bible tells us how to live as human beings is correct, but but Christ is calling us to a a contrasting way of of presenting that to the culture, and, and kindness and gentleness and meekness are marks of that. And then he says to be accountable. We have to be accountable. To, we have to examine ourselves because he says God will not be mocked, right? He says, for whatever one sows, one will reap. In verse 5, he says, each will have to bear his own load. And that's the load of did we love others in the way that God has called us to? And so we're called to examine ourselves, submit to one another in the family of God. And be accountable before God. Well, this passage of scripture, I believe, is the, is the New Testament's answer to this question that Cain asked God that we see in Genesis chapter 4. After murdering his brother Abel, God shows up and says, Where, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? It's an irresponsible question. If we're our brother, if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, then then we are one another's keeper. And Paul makes that clear, that that we're neither to assert our self-superiority over one another and provoke, or we're we're neither to walk in our inferiority and resent others, but we're to love and serve one another. If we're heavy laden, we bear the burdens. If, if one falls into sin, we restore them with gentleness. And it's through this authentic fellowship and loving service that we'll be led to by walking by the Spirit and by doing so fulfill the law of Christ. Authentic fellowship is it's characterized by faithful followers who are responsible for, for one another and, and accountable to God. Well, we're honored this morning to have a, a special guest with us, as I mentioned, Dr. Glan. Dr. Glan is a, a professor of media arts and worship at Dallas Seminary. She's been a friend to this church as we've walked through um, examining the role of men and women in, in ministry. She's the author and, and general editor of over 20 books dealing with art and culture, gender issues, issues of sexuality, and, and I'm sure more that, that I don't recount. But she's here this morning to, to share a story of, of what she has experienced in authentic fellowship. Her own personal testimony of, of one anothering and, and along the way to give us some instruction about the Psalms of Lament. And so, Dr. Glan, I want to ask you to come forward and share. Good morning, Trinity. It's always a pleasure to be with you. I just love your church so much. Um, 
As our brother mentioned, I want to share just for a few minutes about how I have been shepherded well in the process of lament. As a new believer, I was taught an acrostic that probably some of you were taught in prayer ACTS. ACTS is an acrostic for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, which is great. The Lord's Prayer sort of follows some of that, but I, what is missing in that is lament which, as it turns out, is the most common prayer in the Psalms. And so in my early days as a Christian, I picked up, whether overtly or covertly, that I couldn't ask God questions. I couldn't tell God that I was frustrated with him. I couldn't be angry with him. I couldn't basically have a relationship <laughs> with him. Um, and so as I was going through infertility and pregnancy loss, and my husband and I um, had history of seven early pregnancy losses followed by three failed adoptions. And as I was going through that, I partnered with a medical doctor who was also a believer uh, and a DTS grad. And so we were writing this book together on the spiritual side of that and what the Bible had to say. And I came across this letter. And when I gave it to him, I wrote across the top, Be beware of stray lightning bolts. Okay, so here's the letter that I thought was going to evoke God's rage. Dear God, as you most certainly know by now, I don't have any faith whatsoever in you. I don't even like you. I think you've done a lousy job of supervising the frail planet on which I live. Under normal circumstances, you'd be fired. You must have terrific tenure. Nonetheless, I couldn't find anybody else old enough or big enough to talk to. I've noticed a lot of other humans whispering to you, mumbling their thanks, quietly requesting things from Nonprofit sharing to uh, salvation. I'm not asking for anything. I just want you to know I'm angry. I'm filled with rage that's got 20,000 years of savage mating behind it, and I want to explode at your heaven. I can't have children like Abraham's wife, Sarah, remember her, a barren womb, empty arms. Okay. I mean, he kind of singes, right? And so I handed this to him with that note, beware of stray lightning bolts. And he said, that's not how I see it at all. I said, really? He said, yeah, I think it's honest. I said, yeah, but it's rude. And I said, we're not, we're not supposed to ask God questions. And he said, have you read the Psalms? They're full of questions. David was the one who initially wrote, why have you forsaken me? Was David actually ever forsaken by God? No, he wasn't. And I walked out of there going, you're wrong. <laughs> You're wrong. Um, so, but I will say, then I started looking at the Psalms, and I did start noticing things like, why are you so far, and why have you deserted me, and all these accusations that were absolutely not true. One of them was, I was like a beast before thee. And I, I thought that was kind of funny. I'm picturing, you know, a bull running in, in Spain. Uh, and so I would begin to notice things like, how long, oh Lord, why have you forsaken me? And as I pondered this idea that the ACTS formula had left out the most common form of prayer in the Psalms, I discovered that Psalm 6, 13, 22, 27, 44, 69, 70, 74, 88, 102, and 142 were Psalms of lament. That's a lot. Full of questions and rage and anger that seems very disrespectful. And God put it there as a sample, it was almost like he was baiting me saying, oh, your prayers are not nearly confident enough. Come on, you can give me better than that. But still I had doubts. I remember taking a walk with my husband in the snow going, do I really have permission to have that kind of a relationship with God? And I started looking at the format of lament and it typically begins with just uh, very short, like God, why? Or uh, how long, oh Lord? It's just something that suggests that it's a prayer. And then it's followed by what's wrong. Somebody slandered me. The evil are prospering. Somebody betrayed me. And then what I want God to do about it. You know, one of them where it says, uh, somebody slandered me, God, I want you to cut off their lips. <laughs> that doesn't sound very loving. But there it was, right in the Bible. And then sometimes there's evidence that God answered. It's like the psalmist was writing out his prayer journal and came back later and says, thank you for showing up, thank you for providing, thank you for doing justice, but not always. And most of the time, in fact, in all but Psalm 88, 
it ends with a psalm. The, the, the psalmist has come back to, but I trust in you. But I know you're good. It doesn't feel like it. I know I'm limited in my humanity, but you're good. Psalm 88 is sometimes called the hospice psalm because it doesn't have a happy ending. It doesn't end with that. It just ends with a lament. But most of the time, the psalmist is praying, being honest, then telling him herself the truth or herself the truth and coming to, but you're sovereign, you're good. I think about Job's nature walk, right? And, and he asks all these questions and God's like, let me ask you some questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you know where I store the snow? Uh, so God answers questions with questions. Well, our second failed adoption happened three days before Christmas one year. We had the nursery ready, and it was really difficult to celebrate the birth of a baby. Uh, so I called my sister in California, uh, and she's, she's the baby of the family, and she's the comedian. And she said, you all are going through the wheel of misfortune. Anybody here remember Vanna White? <laughs> Y'all are going through the, the wheel of misfortune. Why don't you fly to California and go skiing with us? And I said, because money? <laughs> and she said, what are credit cards for? They're for emergencies. Now, you have to know this about my husband. We like come up with pros and cons. And if the, you know, if the con list is longer than the pro list, we don't spend the money. But in a moment of insanity, we said, you know what, we are not going to sit here looking at that empty nursery. And we plunked down our credit cards, and we flew to California to be with my sister. And she had said, we'll go skiing. We'll go, uh, we'll go skiing at Lake Tahoe. So we walk in the door, and she said, you are going to be so mad at me. I said, why? She goes, well, I didn't actually check to see if there were any openings at Lake Tahoe. You, you what? There were no openings at Lake Tahoe. So we went to plan B, which, okay. So we get there and we say we need two bedrooms and they're like, oops, we thought you said two rooms. So now my husband and I are sharing space with our two little nieces. At the time, I'm working on the music production team for Barney and Friends and I am sick of those songs. And our nieces are at the end of the bed with the TV on at seven o'clock in the morning singing, I love you. I'm going, have mercy on me. And then one of my nieces comes down with chicken pox. Yeah. So I sent everybody out to the slopes, and I opened my Bible to Psalm 22, and the first line is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is exactly how I felt. And I was amazed that I had permission to talk that way. Of course it wasn't true, but that's how I felt. And instead of invalidating how I felt, God said, come on, bring it. Oh, you can do better than that. <laughs> come on, bring it. My brother in Christ had had the wisdom to not push farther than I was able to hear. And he didn't sit me down and say, let's have a Bible study and how to have a lament. He just shepherded my soul. He gave me what I could handle in the moment, dropped an idea, walked away. My husband took a walk with me as I processed it. My sister invited me to destroy her own vacation plan and welcome us into her home. Lots of people. Nobody in that situation, amazingly, told me how to feel. And people actually wept with me through that. And we are told to weep with those who weep. I was so tired of crying in public, and I didn't feel stupid when somebody cried with me. That meant I didn't have to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I had total freedom to feel what I felt. And as a result, I came away with new courage to express the pain I felt, a way bigger view of God, and the kind of loving, caring, personal God with whom I have a relationship than I'd ever had before. I came away with an appreciation for the centuries and centuries of the middle of our Bibles being the Hebrew prayer book and every possible emotion we can have from joy to despair to discouragement to disappointment 
to frustration, to happiness, to celebration. It's all there, written out, so that we will know how to have a relationship with the God who invites us to be real and uses the body of Christ to help us on that journey. Well, thank you, Dr. Glenn. Would you all bow your heads with me in prayer? Well, Heavenly Father, um, we are just so grateful that, that we have freedom through your Son, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all the requirements of the law and, and calls us into this law of love. And Father, that we come with just such great thanksgiving as, as our sister's story reminds us that, that we are not alone, that God, that you are present with us in our suffering, that you see us in the midst of our suffering, and that you've made it part of your purpose and design that, that the household of faith is to come around brothers and sisters in their times of suffering and burden and to, and to help carry those burdens. Not with a corrective, but, but simply with presence and love and a reminder that, that we're not alone in these things. Father, help us to, to live into this call, to, to bear the burdens of one another. And, and Father, continue to encourage us to, to walk in your spirit. Help us to know that, that when we fail, that we can try again, that failure is part of learning, and that you don't expect any of us to be perfect, but, but God, that you simply ask us to, to be led by you and to walk with you. And so, Father, help us to do all these things. Help us to grow deeper into our capacity as an authentic fellowship of those who follow your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Together.